Good morning again. Turn with me to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27, and I'm going to read briefly verses 7 through 11. If you do not have your Bible, you will need one this morning. So if you don't, didn't bring it or left it in the car or don't have one, just lift your hand up, and one of our ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. So if you don't have a Bible, just throw your hand up, and, uh, and an usher will come put one in your hand. It's right up here up front. Um, and if you do not own a Bible, um, that is yours to take. So please, if you do not own a Bible, this Bible is our gift to you. Please, please take it. Write your name in it. It is yours. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 27, the whole chapter today. But to get us started, I want to read verses 7 through 11. Acts chapter 27, verses 7 through 11. It says, Sailing slowly for many days, with difficulty we arrived off Snittis. Since the wind did not allow us to approach it, we sailed along the south side of Crete of Salmon. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. By now, much time had passed and the voyage was already dangerous since the day of atonement was already over. Paul gave his advice and told them, men, I can see that this voyage is headed towards disaster and heavy loss. Not only of the cargo, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than what Paul has said. There was a man by the name of William Ernest Henley. He was born in 1849 in England. He was the son of a poet and a writer and a critic. And so he became a writer and a critic from an early age. Unfortunately, young William contracted tuberculosis in his bones from the time he was 12 years old. And so he agonized, and they had doctors and treatments come and look at it. But after several years, it became decisive that he would have to lose his leg, which the tuberculosis had already spread. So at 27 years old, William Ernest Henry has his leg amputated. In 1875, he's laying in the hospital with his leg recently amputated, looking at his life, and he begins to write a series of poems. Now, you may not know many of his other poems, but although this one poem that didn't even have a title when he wrote it has become one of the most famous pieces in all of poetry. Let me read this to you. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those words, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, have been used by hundreds of men, women, and children around the world. Matter of fact, it was later named, that poem that we just read, called Invictus. It literally means unconquered in Latin. Winston Churchill used those lines, that I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul, when he was standing in front of the House of Commons. While Nelson Mandela was in prison, he would share these lines with others to encourage them as well. Even U.S. prisoners of war, when they were in North Vietnam, used to write this on scraps of toilet paper and pass it around to the other soldiers. 
as means of encouragement. William Henley's words may sound beautiful, but they are dangerous. To be captain of your soul, to be master of your fate may sound comforting, but in reality, that is the most dangerous position for you to be in, in control. In today's passage, we're going to see Paul go on a journey, and he has a literal captain who decides to make a choice that Paul disagrees with. But we begin to see in this passage what it looks like when we are in control versus when God is in control. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 11 to set the scene. When it was decided that we were to sail to Italy, now who is the we that's talking? Paul, as you may remember from last week, he, he gets arrested. Uh, he's a charged by the jewels of many different things and really not sure what it is. And so um, the, the powers that be were going to release Paul, but Paul decided to appeal to Caesar. He was a Roman citizen at the time, and so he had a right to take his case to the highest court of the land, Caesar himself. And so although he could have been freed innocent, he decides to go to Rome because God has called him there. And so he must be sent. So Agrippa and Festus, the two people who presiding over his trial, decide to send Paul to Rome. Now the we, though, the writer of the book of Acts is Luke. So on this leg of the journey, Luke and some other brothers have joined Paul on this trip from where they are to Rome. And so we decided to set sail. We were setting sail for Italy. They handed Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. Verse 2. We had boarded a ship of Adamatium. We put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we put in to Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to receive their care. When we had put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After sailing through the open sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reached Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us aboard. Sailing slowly for many days with difficulty, we arrived to Snidus. Now, you may be a little lost right now. There's a lot of places. There's a lot of names. There's actually a map that's going to be shown on the screen. Paul is taking this long and, tri- and dangerous trip from Caesarea all the way to the city of Rome. Now, we'll zoom in on the part of the leg of the trip that we're on right now. Um, you can begin to see some of these places. Why is this included in Scripture? It's included in Scripture because this isn't a fairy tale, y'all. The Bible aren't children's stories that are made up to make people feel better. These are actual places with real people that we can find confidence and trust in. This passage has actually been studied because Acts chapter 27 and 28, three-fourths of the passages talk about journey, talks about travel. And there's lots of scholars who wonder, like, why is Luke spending so much time talking about a journey to a place? Why isn't he talking about Cabal's message and his preaching? I believe one of the reasons that Luke is telling us exactly where they went and how they traveled is so that we would find confidence that these things are true. We would find confidence that these things are true. So what do we see happening? The verses I read earlier, we're going to pick back up in verse 10. Paul stands up and says, men, I can see that this voyage is headed towards disaster and heavy loss, not only of our cargo, but also of our lives. So Paul is saying, hey, we, we stopped at this port, Fairhaven. Let's stay here. Let's stay here because I think if we go any further, we're going to be in trouble. But the centurion paid, verse 11, paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul has said. So what was happening is the port, the the harbor that they were in was not the best harbor. And there was another harbor about 40 miles away. And the captain and the centurion, the Roman leader at the time, says, hey, we can make it. 
We're going to stay close to the coast, and we're going to get to this safer harbor, and we'll ride out winter there. This is about late October, early November at this time. Now, people give the centurion a hard time in this passage because why didn't you listen to Paul? Well, would you listen to a prisoner over a captain of a ship? Like, I don't think he's, I think what he did is he's made a reasonable choice. This is not an outlandish thing. This, he's actually following common sense. I'm a captain of the guard. You're my prisoner. I'm going to listen to the captain and not you. And so he does what any of us would have done in that choice, in that situation. The captain says we can make it. He believes that they can make it. And so they set out. Now, three guesses how this journey ends up for them. Verse 13, we pick it up. They decide to head out in verse 13. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They said, man, this was the right call. They weighed anchor. They pulled the anchor in and sailed along the shore of Crete. But before long, a fierce wind called the northeaster rushed down from the island. And since their ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it, and they were driven along. Verse 16, after running under the shelter of a little island called Kata, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis. They lowered the drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along because they were being severely battered by the storm. They began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. For many days, there was neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. Now, what is that saying? Some of you from coastal cities or from the city of Charleston know that we get hurricane season about every year, right? And every year, Weather Channel says, this is the big one. Everyone's going to die. Guaranteed. This is the one. If you don't leave, there's no chance for you. But the reality is hurricanes get all their power from being over the ocean, right? And so we know by the time it hits land, and maybe, you know, Florida gets hit pretty hard every year. But by the time it gets to us, it would have died out because that riding over the land is what takes the energy from the hurricane. Now, Paul is not on land, is he? He's caught in a hurricane-type weather over the water in a wooden boat, right? This is the times of Jesus. This isn't a submarine. This isn't a United States naval vessel. This is a wooden boat caught in a hurricane over the water. This is a bad situation, so bad that they were tying ropes around the outside of the ship. You know, you tie a present, you tie it around night tight. They were putting ropes around the vessel to keep it from falling apart. They were throwing off their tackle. Tackle is the things that you use to steer the ship. They didn't have any chance of steering. They said, you know what, they're just trying to stay alive. They begin to throw their tackle overboard. They begin to throw other things overboard. They begin to throw even their food overboard. They were so afraid of sinking that they wanted the ship to be as light as possible, even if they had to starve. Now, remember what Paul said? Paul remembers what Paul said. Look what he says. Verse 21 since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up and among them and said, you men should have followed my advice. Every once in a while, it's just good to be like, you know what? I told you so. <laughs> but it's a sanctified told you so because he's not done. You men should have followed my advice to not sail from Crete and sustain the damage and loss now. Now that we're in this, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to dwell on what's done. Now I urge you to take courage Because there will be no loss of your lives, but only of the ship. For last night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, 
Don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar, and indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe God, that it will be just the way it was told to me, but we may have to run aground on some island. Here we get to the central verse in this entire narrative, y'all. Did you catch it? Look back at verse 25 again. The storm is still raging. We are still without food. We have still no way to guide or direct this ship. There is no hope of this storm ending, but I believe God. And God said, we're going to make it. God said, not only am I going to make it, but all of you are going to make it. Now, here's, here's where there's a shift in the power dynamic of the conversation. Paul went from being ignored to now being kind of running the show from here on out. Verse 27 through 32, look there. So Paul leads them in this kind of last supper type meal. They have a meal together and they throw all their food over after they finish eating. When the 14th night came in verse 27, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea and about midnight, the sailors thought they were approaching land. They took soundings and found it to be 120 feet deep. They're getting closer and closer to ground. Verse 30. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were going to put anchors from the bow. But Paul knew what they were doing. Verse 31, Paul said, it's a Tyrian and the soldiers. Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, Paul, who is a prisoner, is now giving orders to the centurion. Hey, unless these guys stay here, we're all in trouble. All right, Paul, I believe you. What do they do? They cut the skiffs and let them drop away. They cut the boats away and say, all right, no more boats for anybody because I believe Paul. Now what happens in the story? Verses 39 through 42, we can kind of see where this is going. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. They were approaching land. They saw land finally, and they're like, we're going to make an all-out run for, this, for the sand. We're just going to run the ship because we got to get out this water, and we have to do whatever it takes to get out of this water. And so they're just going, let's just run the ship into a sandbar. But the problem with that in verse 42 was the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim away and escape. Now, why is that such a big deal? One of the, the, the rules of Roman guards is if you are guarding a prisoner and that prisoner escaped, you, the guard, would receive whatever punishment that prisoner was supposed to expect. So if that prisoner was on his way to receive a death penalty and he got away, guess what happened to you? If that prisoner was going to get 39 lashes, that prisoner was going to be in prison for a certain time, if your prisoner escaped as a Roman guard, you would have to face the punishment of that prisoner. That's why it would be better for them to just kill all the prisoners. Why take the chance? Why take the chance of them escaping? Now we're all going to face their penalties. But look what happens. Verse 43, but the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. And so he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were following some planks and some debris from the ship. And this way, everyone safely reached the shore. That's a cool story. Pretty dramatic. Had a little climax in it, a beginning, an intro kind of resolution. It makes sense. Maybe a good Netflix special. But what is God saying to us through this story? And I believe it comes down to this. Who gets the final say in your life? Who gets the final say in your life? Is it the world and its teachings, or is it God and his holy word? You see, the world says, be yourself. 
God says, be imitators of me as dearly loved children. The world says, trust yourself. The word says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. The the world says, speak your truth. The word of God says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So who will you trust, believer? Will you trust in your ability and your capability, or will you trust what God has said? I've said it before, and I believe it to be true, that a faith that hasn't been tested can't be trusted. A faith that hasn't been tested can't be trusted. Now, remember at the height of the storm, earlier in verse 30, 31, some sailors are about to get off the boat? What did, what did Paul say, remember? He says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Here's a question, why? Why was everyone else's survival dependent on them staying inside the boat? Did God say that in the vision? Not that we know of. Were there some prophecy that they have to stay together? Maybe, maybe not. Why would Paul say to these men that everyone has to stay together? Here's why. If God is your plan B, you'll never see him move in your life. If you want to see God's rescuing and redeeming power, you got to stay in the boat. If you want to see God's rescuing and redeeming power in your life, you've got to hold on to what he says, even when it doesn't look like what he says is true. Paul told these sailors, we're going to be okay. But when he said that, the storm didn't die down, the winds didn't stop blowing, the rain didn't stop following. There's no evidence to believe what you said is true. So why should I hold on to this promise? I've been praying for this thing for years, and it hasn't changed yet. I know somebody who prayed for it, and it never happened. But the principle remains the same, that if you want to see God move, you got to stay in the boat. you got to hold on to the promises of God. And that's the point of the story, y'all. Because it wasn't Paul's word that we were to trust. Paul was a prisoner. He was a man just like you and I. He had no more the Holy Spirit than you or I. It's not Paul that, that the sailors were called to trust. But remember what Paul said in the vision? The God whom I serve, he said that we're going to be okay. And so my question is today, what has God said to you? What has God said to you? And what has God said to you that you, maybe over the years, have stopped believing? He said, yeah, that was true back then, but now it's, it's up to me. I know the Lord says he'll never leave me or forsake me, but I don't, I don't feel that's true. So I'm going to look for companionship and relationship in anywhere I can find it. I know the Lord said that he will provide all my needs according to his riches, but I'm, I'm just going to have to get out here and make it happen. I know the Lord says to wait on him, and he will provide and meet me in those times of comfort and need, but I got to medicate and comfort myself because God is not enough. What has God said to us? And maybe we believed it, but the winds and waves didn't stop, and so we're slowly getting out of the boat, looking for our own means of rescue, looking for our own life raft. Verse 27, verse 25, take courage, men. Because I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told to me. You see, William Ernest Henry was an avowed atheist when he wrote that poem. He didn't believe in a God. And so for him, it was all on him. I won't be defeated by this sickness. I won't be defeated by these circumstances. I will be the captain of my fate and the master of my own destiny. Because what other hope did he have? 
But the reality is in 1903, at 53 years old, he died of tuberculosis in his home. For all of his words, all of his pontifications, he still died without hope and without God. There's another woman by the name of Dorothy Day. Dorothy was a believer who worked as a defender of the poor, a Christian social activist most of her life. She was born in Brooklyn, New York. Must be nobody from Brooklyn in here because y'all can't help yourselves whenever y'all hear the city. There we go. All right. Anytime you say Brooklyn, it's like a Brooklyn. <laughs> y'all are ridiculous. Amen. Born in Brooklyn, New York, raised Catholic, became a wonderful believer and a phenomenal Christian. She actually wrote a response to William Ernest Henley's poem. And her poem is entitled, Captain of My Soul. And it reads thus. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which all men chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his with aid, that spite the minutes of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. Listen to this last line. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared punishment from the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. That is the reality for the believer, that we are not living lives on our own. We are not up to our own devices when it comes to managing and navigating life. Christ is our captain. And that's good news, y'all. Because here's the reality. When the captain said, let's sail out, even though Paul told him not to sail, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was making the best possible decision with the best information that we have. And we have done that too, haven't we? We made the pros and cons list. We, we talked to all the right people. We did the best decision that we could make, except we didn't ask God what he thought or we weren't patient enough to wait for God to answer. And so we made what many would consider a wise decision. How did that work out for you? The best laid plans fall before God in his wisdom. So I'm not saying reject common sense. Paul, I don't think he heard a voice from the Lord when he told them to stay in that port. Paul had traveled these seas before. He was like, hey, man, this is a good idea. Why, Why risk it? But see, for him... God was in the equation. God was the one ultimately deciding, and that's what he wanted us to see in this passage. But also, I want you to see one other thing before I close. I want you to see redemption in this passage. The sailors rejected the advice of Paul. They didn't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yet God still saved them. So here's the reality, y'all. If we were all held liable for the choices that we've made, none of us would be here. If all of us got the full consequences of the decisions that we've made, none of us would be here. But like Paul, like the the centurion, we can choose wrong and God will still save. All we have to do is turn and trust him. God is not leaving you out in the storms of life. He's not leaving you to your own devices. It is never too late to say, okay, God, I surrender. It is never too late to say, okay, God, I trust you, and watch his redeeming and rescuing power at work, but it's a choice that we have to make. Let me end with this. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 18, God talking to the nation of Israel. 
See, today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity, for I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, statutes, and ordinances so that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But but if your heart turns away and do not listen, and you are led astray to bow and worship to other gods and to serve them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish and will not prolong your days in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. That choice is still being offered to us today. Will we choose life in him or we choose the idols of self? On one hand, God's blessing and his presence and his love and his redemption and his grace. On the other hand, God respects our choice to be captains of our own fate and masters of our own destiny. What will you choose? For the believer, this doesn't have eternal consequences, but it's a daily choice that we make to take up our cross daily and follow him. That every day we're going to reject the idols of this world. We're going to reject the idols of self-sufficiency, and we're going to choose to follow Christ wherever he may take us. But if you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, this choice does have eternal consequences. You see, you're not just choosing your way. You are rejecting Jesus. You're not just choosing to live life on your terms. You are rejecting Jesus. And rejecting Jesus comes with consequences, for in him is life, and in no other will you find it. So hear me pleading with you. If you do not know Jesus, come. Come today. It's never too late. No matter what you've done, no matter what you plan to do later today, it does not matter. God can redeem and rescue you even right now in the midst of the storms of life. Pray with me, church. Father.